So we are continuing our series today called Endgame, and this week has a title that really sounds like a movie title, Endgame Resurrection. Doesn't that sound exactly? But um, anyway, uh, we are, we're, what we're doing in this series is we're teaching about what the Bible tells us about the end of the world. So the Bible is clear that the universe is not just going to continue on as it is um, and, and just continue on forever without stopping. Um, this age will come to an end, and a new age will begin. And that time of transition, there's going to be some really momentous things that are going to happen during that time, and God has told us about some of those things in His Word, the Bible. And so we're taking a couple of months here to study the Scriptures and try to learn uh, what the Bible has to tell us about the end times or the end of the age. And we're focusing in this series uh, on the things that are most clear in the Bible, the things that Christians have agreed on over the centuries and have not been um, uh, sources of uh, conflict and debate. Uh, and we're just giving uh, passing attention to those areas that are less clear and more controversial in the area of uh, end time studies, because there have been a lot of uh, disagreements, and there are still many disagreements about the core issues are clear in the Bible, and that's what we're going to be focusing on here. So today our topic is the resurrection and the rapture, and the key passage that we're going to spend most of our time in today is um, from the book of 1 Corinthians, and it's 1 Corinthians, uh, a, lot, a big chunk of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. So we're going to dig right into it, um, starting with verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and it says this, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you were saved if you hold on firmly to what I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. So how valuable it is for all of us to be reminded of the foundational truths of the gospel. And um, we've talked about these things, um, all kinds of practical topics uh, as, we've, uh, as we study the Word, but it's very important to be reminded and to reemphasize those foundational, basic truths that are the core of um, Christianity. And here Paul is doing that for the church in Corinth as he's writing in this letter. He says, for what I received... I passed on to you as of first importance. So here's what Paul taught to these people when he first came there. These are the early days of Christianity. None of the people there knew anything about Jesus before Paul arrived. He was a, a pioneering missionary to, uh, to bring the gospel to them. And this is what he taught them was of first importance. So he didn't just say, here's some important things. He said, this is of first importance. This is the core of the Christian message of the good news or the gospel. The message that when we believe this message, then we are saved. And here's what he says it is. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. This is a brief statement here of, uh, of what the core is, but, but uh, 
there's a lot of meaning in these, these, uh, this, this brief summary of the things. So he starts off with, um, Christ died for our sins. That's the first statement of first importance. And of course, that, um, that is one of the most core beliefs of uh, Christianity, that, uh, that Jesus died for our sins. And it implies a couple of things that are spelled out more fully in other parts of the Bible. It implies, first of all, that we're sinners, right? Christ doesn't die for your sins if you're not a sinner. So we have all failed to live up to the standard that God has set for us. We have all chosen at various times throughout our lives to do what we know is not right. And the Bible teaches that the justice of God requires that the penalty for sin must be paid. And that penalty is death. And that's why, as it says, Jesus died for our sins. Because Jesus did not want to see us pay the price for our sins, and so He paid the price on our behalf. He died a sinner's death. He was tortured and executed so that people could be saved from the justice that we owed. So that now, as it said in in verse 2 there, if we hold fast to the gospel message, putting our faith in Jesus, we from that faith. The next part of the summary here, after he says Christ died for our sins, he says that it was done according to the Scriptures. And that means that um, sins was predicted ahead of time uh, in the prophecies of the Bible. But these prophecies, they're not simple predictions of the future. They were much more than simply God revealing that He already knew what was going to happen. It was God revealing His plan for dealing with the problem of human sinfulness. When it says Jesus died according to the Scriptures, it means that His death was according to the plan that God had revealed to His people through the Bible. And when the first people, Adam and Eve, chose to rebel against God's command and they doomed the entire human race to sin, God already had a plan to save us. Jesus' death happened just as God planned it, according to the Scriptures, according to the way that God had laid it out to happen. Then the next part of the summary here, first He died according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was buried. And He he includes that here in order to emphasize that Jesus was actually dead, right? He didn't just suffer for our sins. He wasn't just tortured for our sins. He suffered and died. And that's a very important part of the overall point that Paul is making here. Jesus was dead. He wasn't just mostly dead, like uh, Wesley from The Princess Bride, right? Uh, Big difference between mostly dead and all dead, but Jesus was all dead. The tomb. But the next part is pretty important too, and it's the topic of the rest of this chapter. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. See, on Friday, Jesus was dead. And on Saturday, Jesus was still dead. And on Sunday, He was still dead. But then sometime in early Sunday morning, He was not dead anymore. He rose from the grave. And again, it says here that this happened according to the Scriptures. So, meaning all of this was exactly according to God's plan, 
which he had revealed ahead of time and told people that it was going to happen. So um, then we have the last part of the summary here, um, starting in verse 5 here. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some of them have fallen asleep. When he says fallen asleep, he means they've died. Um, Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also, that's the Apostle Paul, as to one abnormally born. And you can read the story of how um, Jesus appeared to Paul uh, sometime after he uh, appeared to anybody else. He came back to to, uh, appear to Paul. But... um, This whole last part of the summary of what is of first importance is Paul's evidence that the resurrection was real. You see, Jesus wasn't just alive in the hearts of his people. So as long as they remember him and his teaching, he's not really dead. No, Jesus' resurrection was real. He appeared to people physically repeatedly to a large number of people, some of whom the Corinthians had actually met. He died, he was buried, and then he came back to life. So why was it so important to emphasize that he really rose from the dead? Well, it's because there were people in Corinth in this day who didn't think it was true. They didn't think Jesus had rose from the dead. It says right here in uh, verse... uh, Nine. No. Sorry, where am I here? here we go. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? So apparently some of the, the, the Corinthians, they liked Christian teachings, right? But they were unwilling to accept the idea of the resurrection from the dead. And he doesn't say here why people were doubting it, but it, it, it's likely that it had something to do with the Greek philosophical worldview that people had in those days. Corinth was part of Greece, and, and uh, many Greeks had this, this uh, kind of an anti-physical worldview. We saw that in the book of Acts. Paul goes to Athens, and he presents to them. He's talking to them about God. They are all very interested in what he has to say until he brings up the resurrection from the dead. And as soon as he brings that up, eh, we don't want to hear anymore. That's foolishness. And they're done with it. And probably some kind of a, a philosophical mindset like that was the same problem in Corinth. They didn't want to hear about the resurrection. And these people, they seem to be members of the church, right? But they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believed were enough to justify practicing their religion, even if there was no resurrection to look forward to, right? So they think Christianity is good, even if it's only for this current life. No future resurrected life in heaven was necessary for them. So is that kind of thinking still around today? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it's, it's quite popular to say that religion, if you choose to practice religion and follow it, 
is, is good for people that practice, and it's good for society. Um, a quick Google search gave me quite a few articles of religious practices. Right? So there's an article in Forbes that I came across uh, that was titled, uh, Religion is Good for All of Us, Even Those Who Don't Follow One. And here's a couple of quotes from the Forbes articles. Forbes says, Studies have shown that religious attendance once or more per week leads to an extra seven years of life expectancy. Other studies have shown other health benefits, such as a stronger immune system and lower blood pressure. Religious participation by kids has been shown to result in less juvenile delinquency, less drug use, including less smoking, better school attendance, and a higher probability of graduating from high school. Similarly, adults who regularly attend religious services also commit fewer crimes. So, hey, it's good for society for us all to be religious, right? Huffington Post also published an article, Why Religion is Linked with Better Health and Well-Being. Huffington Post says, There is an overwhelming research evidence that people can live longer if they actively engage in formal religious activities and follow their faiths behavioral prescriptions. And that article goes on to quote a professor of sociology who says, regular and frequent religious attendance does seem to be one of the significant predictors of less stress and more life satisfaction. Right, so in light of those kinds of benefits and, and more other things too, there are people today who, like this group in the Church of Corinth, they want to be Christians but they don't really buy in to the whole heaven and hell and uh, that de life and death part of Christian teaching, right? They just want the community. They want good ethical teachings. They want, uh, they want the encouragement to improve their lives now. They want traditions uh, that they can follow. And they believe that when we die, we're dead. But religion is still good for us in this life, right? It gives us a better life now. And that goes beyond just the doctrine of the resurrection, right? Many people see no need for any of these biblical teachings about eschatology, the, the study of the end times, right? So uh, Jesus' return, final judgment, uh, the millennium, the resurrection, new heaven and new earth, none of that is necessary. They just feel like, no, we can just have a good, uh, a, a good experience with religion without believing in any of that stuff. And that's what people were saying in Corinth 2,000 years ago. And here's what the Bible has to say about that kind of thinking. Verse 13, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And then a few verses down, he says, For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins, and those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost." See, the Bible says that faith in a Jesus who did not raise from the dead is useless and futile. Some people want to follow Jesus only as a good teacher who taught us 
some good moral principles to live by, right? Love your neighbor, honor your parents, be a good Samaritan to those in need, care for one another, forgive one another. And of course, Jesus did teach all those things. Those are great things. He taught some really good ethical principles and how to, how to live a godly life. But Jesus was so much more than just an ethical teacher. Did you notice the summary of things that Paul started out with, of the things that were of first importance, had nothing to do with ethics and lifestyle? The core of the gospel message is about Jesus and about his death and resurrection, not about the things that he taught while he was here. Christianity is primarily not about how to have a better marriage or have better health or better relationships. Now, most of us here are probably not attempted, we're not being tempted to abandon any belief in the return of Christ or in the resurrection or in heaven and hell and stuff. But I would say that there is a lesson here, even for those of us who are not thinking to, to abandon all that stuff, is even if we still believe that our faith in Jesus will save us from the judgment, does our life and practice an emphasis on that belief? Or do we live practically as if these things are of little importance to us? So the, the, the climax of Paul's rejection of a Christianity that is all about this life comes in verse 19 where he says, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. Now, there really are advantages to following Christian teachings, even in this life. But Paul is making a point here through hyperbole, right? Um, Forbes and the Huffington Post and all the rest are recognizing the good things that Christianity can bring into our lives in the here and now. But in comparison with the full truth of the gospel and the reality of the promise of eternal life with God... A faith that only gives us these small benefits for this life is pitiful. It's pitiful. And most importantly, the resurrection of Jesus and the promise of our own resurrection when he returns is true. You see, that's why Paul is listing all these witnesses to the resurrection. He wants to make sure the Corinthians understand that the resurrection is not just a nice idea that you should believe in because it would be so nice if it were true. No, it is true. It is true. Verse 20, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. See, Jesus was the first fruits. That means that he was the initial harvest that shows that the rest of the harvest is coming. Jesus rose from the grave to 
show that we will all rise from the grave. The resurrection of Jesus, which was historically verifiable with, at that time, hundreds of eyewitnesses who could prove to them, um, is a fact. The resurrection is a fact. Our own resurrections are a promise based on that fact. And whatever benefits we enjoy as a result of being part of the church now are pitiful compared to what is to come. And the same goes for for hardships, because for many people throughout the history of of the church, including many people today, there are significant disadvantages to being a Christian in this life. And Paul experienced some of those too. He had especially violent persecution for preaching the gospel. But here's what he said about that in, in, in his letter to the church in Rome. He said, Ike present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. It's not that you can compare it's like, yeah, the, you know, present sufferings are pretty bad, but the what's coming is even better. No, you, it, you don't even compare them. It's so much better, so much better. So whether we think of the, the good things that come to us in this life as a result of being a Christian, or we think of the disadvantages and potential suffering that come to us as a result of our faith, the glory of our eternal resurrected life will be so great, it will make all of that insignificant and irrelevant. We have a great hope to look forward to. We will live forever in the presence of God in immortal bodies enjoying paradise with no end. So if we, if we move down a few, few verses in this chapter, we'll see a bit, a bit about how and when all of this is going to happen. Down to uh, verse 51 of 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. So the Bible calls this a mystery, right? Uh, that doesn't mean that, that Paul is, uh, doesn't understand what he's writing. I'm writing a mystery. I don't even know what I'm talking about. No, it means that he's revealing something to us that was a mystery previously. So he's letting us know something that, that people didn't know about before. And the new information that he's telling us here has to do with what is often referred to as the rapture. Right? So when the trumpet sounds, signaling Jesus' return, it says the dead will be raised imperishable. Right? So, so you know how in zombie movies, the undead are always kind of half falling apart, you know, their knees don't work very well, and they're just kind of shuffling around because their bodies are in such bad shape? That's not the way that the resurrection is going to be. It's going to be the exact opposite. Our resurrected bodies are going to be so much better and function so much better than anything that we have experienced before. When God raises people from the dead at the last trumpet, their resurrection bodies that he gives people are going to be imperishable. And that means that we will have immortal bodies that are not susceptible to the weaknesses and sicknesses and viruses 
and cancers and injuries and pain and suffering that we experience now. So that's great for the people who get resurrected, right? So, but what about the people who are still alive when Jesus returns, right? Since they aren't dead, they won't be resurrected, so what's going to happen to them? Are they stuck in their old bodies? No. The rapture is what happens to those living people when Jesus comes back. They will also receive new, improved bodies. Um, as the Bible puts it here, we will not all sleep, that is, we will not all die, but we will all be changed. And this explanation here in Corinthians dovetails with one of the passages we looked at last week relating to the return of Jesus in uh, 1 Thessalonians. So if we go back over to 1 Thessalonians where we were last week, um, he tells us there, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. So this is the, 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 the section of the Bible here that that word rapture comes from. Now, I, I didn't actually read the word rapture in there. It's not in our modern English translations usually, but it comes from the Latin uh, translation of taken up. And so this thing about people being taken up, we who are left will be caught up together. That's where the word rapture comes from. And what it is saying here is that when Jesus comes back, two things are going to happen. The dead will be raised and those who are still alive will be caught up. And then all of Jesus' people uh, will be with the Lord forever. It is difficult to find any discussion of the rapture that is not arguing uh, for one position or against the other position and, and, uh, and in these, these debates um, about the exact order of events and things. Most of the debates uh, stems from questions about the relationship of the rapture to a seven-year period of, uh, of suffering that we often refer to as the tribulation period. Um, but... In keeping with our goal in this series of teaching what is clear in the Scripture and, and not emphasizing the part are, on which solid Bible-believing Christians uh, have widespread disagreements, um, we are not going to uh, get into the debates about exactly how the rapture relates to these other things today. However, when Mike comes back from Florida next week, <laughs> we've decided that he's going to do the hard stuff. And so he's going to talk about the tribulation period. And uh, when he talks about the tribulation period, he'll spend some more time talking about uh, the different uh, uh, options and, and debates and positions here relating to the rapture and how it relates to all those things. So, um, so there are some debatable, de uh, debatable details also about the resurrection uh, of the dead, not just the rapture, but also the resurrection timing in relation to the other events at the end of the age. And, and uh, some believers think that there's actually going to be several re resurrections when different people and different groups will raise at different times. Um, but, but what is clear and, and an indisputable teaching of the Scripture is that we will all uh, rise from the dead 
or be transformed when Christ returns. And, uh, and the importance of that is explained back in our passage in 1 Corinthians again. If we go back over there um, to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, he says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, that is when our perishable bodies have taken on imperishable bodies, when we've been through that transformation, uh, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, we will have victory over death. Our last breath will not be our last breath. Jesus has already defeated death. He died and was buried and rose from the grave. Most of us will also die and be buried. But uh, although the Bible does teach that some of us will get to skip that step if we happen to be here when, uh, when Christ returns. But most of us will die. And, uh, but the decomposing of our bodies is not the end. We will rise again with new transformed bodies. And when Jesus returns, we will live on a new and transformed world, enjoying perfect lives forever. We can have victory over sin and death. Then the saying will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Verse 58, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can know that all of the good things that happen to us in this life and all of the suffering in this life are all not worth comparing to the greatness of what is to come when we get to spend eternity living perfect lives with you. Lord, may this truth be a great encouragement to each one of us as we go about our, our lives here. I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.